All right, this will be a little bit uh, old news for some of you, but I wasn't around last weekend. Uh, I was blessed to participate in my, one of my son's weddings, so um, I kind of saved it for this weekend. I wanted to ask you if you all are happy that the midterm elections are over. Let, let me ask that differently. Are you done seeing the political ads on TV and going to the mailboxes and getting a wad full of flyers? Um, I, I tell you, I, I couldn't wait for it to be done. And um, you know I use videos quite a bit, so I'm on YouTube, and you can't hardly watch anything on YouTube without sitting through one or two of those ads. And it was, I was just so done with it, especially since most of those ads are, uh, are pretty negative now. Mo most of them have leaned in that direction. And I begin this way because I, I want you to know I'm not going to talk to you about the election. I'm not going to talk to you about politics. I, 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 none of that is, is what this is about. That's not the point. And I make that because on my next slide, I've listed several things that you're going to go, well, wait, I thought you just said you weren't going to get into any of that. Because these are uh, items that have been part of the political wranglings of our country for the last couple of years. So why on earth would I say I'm not going to talk about it and then put that up? I'm not going to actually talk about any of these agendas. That's not what this is about. Um, there's something else I want to get to here. And by the way, as I was setting this up, there's one of these I hadn't seen before, Old Lives Matter. I had not heard about that one. And I appreciate that as I'm more and more kind of relating to that demographic. So I, it's good, old lives matter. It's not any about uh, these specific political agendas. It's about a common thread that seems to run through every single one of them. Whether you deem one life is more valuable than another, what we find is that what runs through all of these is that we seem to agree that life matters. And I think hardwired in every one of us is that we want our lives to matter. We want to make a difference in this world. We want to make a difference in other people's lives. We want to leave a mark, if you will, with our time here on earth and have it to be viewed as something positive, something productive. And, and when you look at God's design for creation and how he has wired us, it makes a lot of sense that we were created to bring glory to God and to be a blessing to each other. And so the nagging question is, do our lives really matter? And I ask that because a lot of times, I think what happens is if we're able to take a step back from all of the noise and all of the wranglings that are going on, what we see is we've reached a time in the history of our country, maybe in the history of this world, where the devil is working overtime to tempt us that life doesn't matter. And I'm sure that at, at least one occasion, you've had the devil whispering into your ear, uh, at very least questioning, if not challenging, your thought process, whether or not you really matter in this world, and whether you really matter to God. That probably happens in your life, much like uh, in my life. When I'm having a bad day, when it seems like every time I turn around, one of the thoughts that crosses my mind is, do I really matter to God? And why do I have to deal with all of this garbage if, if my life really does matter? And it's not just the devil tempting us in our relationship with God. A lot of this comes from our relationship with one another. Maybe somebody said something to you at one time that has stuck with you for far too long. Something negative. Something that, if you will, just, just cut your heart out. Or maybe somebody failed to say something positive. Maybe not you were fishing for a compliment, but you tried to help somebody, and at the very least you were hoping for a thank you, and those words never came. You see what the devil does is he gets us to question God's creation and how that all works out in this life, but more so he gets us to question our relationships with each other and whether or not we really do matter to each other.
you don't have value. A kid said I was too short to play. Hasn't she got the skinniest legs you've ever seen in your life? Pretty much told me, hey, you have two left hands and you're never going to be able to do anything handy with handiwork. A lot of people would call me like Rupa the Poopa. Too slow. Um, that was when I was in the restaurant business. What kind of a parent I am. I had a friend in first grade who called me fat. It was unbearable. And I remember it so wounded me and I let it define me in the back of my mind. It did affect me over the years. It was pretty hard. Yeah, it made me really sad. It hurt my feelings. That kind of hurt me mainly because she was my friend. It was so hard to hear that, I mean, it broke my heart. You gotta give people a lot of grace. So you, you wanna put more thought into when you're talking to people, like this person is important to Christ, or I could help this person come closer to Christ. To ask for God's help, not to say mean things to others, and because that's not what Jesus would do, and to make sure what I say reflects who he is. His words rejuvenate, they give, they bring life, they bring energy, they bring power. So you want to use your words to inspire and to really bring people closer, because words have amazing power. It seems we've reached a time where there's a convergence of things that if we take a good hard look at today's lesson, the final lesson of the lesser known, it in my mind might be one of the most important ones that we're going to study. And if I haven't convinced you of that yet, then consider all of the things that the world does today to try and validation, to find meaning, to find some accreditation for their life. Uh, this, is, this is real. This is what people need to do, and social media is part of that, uh, the politics and world history, they're all coming together at such a time where I think the Lord would beg us to ask the question, where do we find our value, where do we find our worth, and unless you were raised in an absolutely perfect home, or went to an absolutely perfect church, every single one of us, every person has this question at one time or another, and if we don't hear the right answer, oftentimes we are left feeling like we're a nobody. Today's lesson, we actually talk about two lesser-known people, and God reminds us that we are somebody. We're somebody in God's eyes. We're somebody special. That's where we get this crazy theme for today. Nobody, everybody, and somebody. These are the words that we're going to study together. They're from 1 Corinthians. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And that tells you the two people that we're going to be studying today, James and then the Apostle Paul, and I'll deal with the objections that you might think Paul's not a lesser known. But first, let's set the scene for today's study. It's pretty simple and straightforward. God used Paul to establish the Christian church in the city of Corinth on a second missionary journey. It was one of the longer journeys, and he had made but a brief stop in Corinth, and God blessed his work there and the work of others, so that very quickly a Christian congregation sprung up. After leaving Corinth, Paul went to the city of Ephesus, where he spent the bulk of this journey, and God also blessed his work there, except that while he was working in Ephesus, he started to get reports that there were problems in the church in Corinth. 
There were a whole slew of problems. I think I preached it to you in the past that of all of the early churches, the Corinthian congregation had the most baggage and the most problems. Two of the problems, the chief problems that they faced were sexual immorality, and this first letter is dedicated a lot to fighting that problem, and something that was every bit as serious, if even not more so, was the fact that this congregation quickly was fra fracturing into subdivisions of believers. In fact, the first letter to the Corinthians starts out that way, where Paul deals with these divisions. By God's grace... The Holy Spirit leads Paul to write a letter to the Corinthians almost immediately addressing these specific problems and guiding them through the other challenges they were facing in their very young lives of faith. Our more specific context deals with the seriousness of the problem of divisions. The chapter that comes before our lesson, chapter 14, Paul goes on and on and on talking about the proper use and how to fight against the abuse of speaking in tongues within the worship service. You see, even the devil was attacking the worship service of the Corinthians so that they were starting to divide themselves. Some people had a proper understanding of how God used the speaking of tongues in the early church, and other people were completely clueless. And it started to be this ranking system, whether you were a good Christian or not, would determine whether you had certain gifts, and that's completely wrong and false. Then we, when we get to our chapter, where our lesson is recorded, chapter 15, the second last chapter of this book, and we see just how important it is, there was this very serious division over the resurrection of the dead. Some people in the congregation certainly believe that when Christ comes again, he will raise us all back to life. And then there were others, and unfortunately they were guided by false teachers who seriously questioned, even doubted, that there was an actual resurrection from the dead. And Paul makes this valid point. You know what? Our entire faith is built on the resurrection of the dead. Jesus' own resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday not only guarantees everything he said to us, but also assures us that one day he will also raise us back to life, take us to heaven, where we get to live face to face with God in eternity. I wish I could say amen right there because that's such a high note. That the Lord's resurrection assures us of so many things special, not only to our faith, but our very lives. At this point, I'd like to remind you that the Holy Spirit uses the skill set of the Apostle Paul. He was trained as a lawyer. I think sometimes we forget that. As Saul in his former life, he had a great legal mind. And oftentimes the Holy Spirit, you can see it how he writes in the original language, but he lays out what we would call a very airtight case, legal case for the resurrection. And what he does, like any good lawyer, is he calls a list of witnesses to testify to make his case. Of the 13 recorded resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ recorded in the scripture, Paul cites almost half of them in a very short period of time. What he does is he begins with this one with Peter. And I know you can think of accounts where Jesus appeared to Peter. When the disciples were up in Galilee, they went out fishing. Simon was there. That's where Jesus reinstates him, that's not the one that's making reference to here. More than likely, it seems that it's referring to the resurrection appearance of Jesus to Peter on Easter Sunday. We have no more details about what that resurrection appearance was about other than what Luke records for us in chapter 24. And this is kind of a double whammy. Without actually having, having to cite this other witness, it would recall people's minds to the fact that it was the two disciples as they went to the city of Emmaus who walked and talked with Jesus, and it's not until they sat down and broke bread with him that their eyes were open and they saw the Lord alive. 
Upon which they immediately jump up, run back to Jerusalem, which was not a short hike, so that they could share the news with the people in Jerusalem, what they had seen. And as they're ready to tell their story, the Jerusalem Christians go, well, he's already appeared to Peter. That's two people now, plus the women. We have all these reports that Jesus is alive. The next witness he calls to the stand are the disciples. And I want you to note, he does use the word disciples. Actually uses the word 12, which is an acronym for the disciples, because of course Judas was dead by this time. And this seems to be a reference not to Easter Sunday, but the next Sunday. The Sunday evening when Jesus appeared to the disciples again, and this time Thomas was with them. Why would Paul point to this appearance? Because Thomas had doubted. And when the Lord appeared, he said, Thomas, touch me. Here's your proof. Here's your evidence. See the nail marks. Put your hand in the side. It's a great witness to call to the stand. And then the third one that he cites, more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Other than this reference, we have absolutely no clue when this happened, how it happened, the occasion. All we know is, is that Jesus chose one occasion where he had hundreds of people to see him alive. It's not just one eyewitness who might have got the details a little bit fuzzy. Hundreds of people. And here's the neat thing. And this is kind of a lawyer trick of Paul. He says, you know what? Most of them are still living. So don't take my word for it. If you really need to have evidence and proof that Jesus rose from the dead, just talk to these people. Most of them are still living at the time of this writing. And I'm sure some of them did just that. What did you see? What did you hear? What did that mean to you? These are the first three witnesses in Paul's list of witnesses to testify the truth, and then he wraps it up with three more witnesses, two of whom are lesser-known characters today. But before we talk about them, I want to speak to this middle reference, the fifth of these six resurrection appearances, and notice now the change in how he refers to the followers, that close-knit group of followers, no longer disciples, but apostles. And the context in this transition to this word clearly indicates that what Paul is referring to is the day that Jesus ascended into heaven on the Mount of Olives right in view of those 11 apostles. Why that's important to understand the context of this resurrection appearance is because it's within this context of they were told to go back to the city of Jerusalem, not to leave. They were to wait. Why? because Jesus promised to send them the Holy Spirit, which happened 10 days later on Pentecost, and it was after that that they could then begin their earthly ministries, build the Christian church, and quite frankly, this handful of people got used to change the face of this earth. Now, why is that important, especially when you put it into the larger context of these two lesser known? Well, let's connect some dots, because it seems that... uh, When we get to James, the Corinthians knew exactly who Paul was talking about, but thousands of years later, we might struggle. Who is this James? Well, he's first mentioned to us in Matthew's account where we have the four half-brothers of Jesus listed. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, also known as Jude. Unfortunately, as you continue to read and study the earthly ministry of Jesus, John is the one who sadly must inform us that none of Jesus' half-brothers believed that he was actually the promised Messiah. And I get that. If one of my brothers showed up and said, I'm going to save you from your sins, I would have a lot of trouble buying into that. So you can see the challenge they had being so closely related to Jesus and why for a time it appears as if they were non-believers. 
We're not, again, given these details because that's not the important part. The important part is, is somewhere between Jesus' earthly ministry and Jesus' ascension, there was a status change in their faith life, at least for two of them. We don't know about the other two, but we do know about two of them. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was actually part of this group who went back and waited in Jerusalem because we have the apostles going back and waiting. We actually have a group of women going back and waiting amongst them, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then Luke adds in his account, and with his brothers. Unfortunately, the plural doesn't tell us how many, but we know there were at least two. James actually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he did so for about 10 plus years and was actually amongst some of the earliest Christian martyrs, people who were killed because they trusted and believed in Jesus as their savior. And the other one we know for sure is the youngest of the four, Judas, also known to us as Jude, and he happened to be the author of the second last book of the New Testament. Hopefully the other two brothers, at some point the Holy Spirit touched their hearts and they believed as well. We won't know that answer until we get to heaven, but we know for sure this James and Jude were led by the Holy Spirit to trust in their half-brother as their Savior from sin. So then this is the James, this lesser known, that though we don't have much information about, God actually uses him in a very powerful way. As a leader of the church, and then as a firm believer, not only in his brother as Messiah, but as a witness of the resurrection. So now you're probably on the same page with me going, okay, James makes sense as a lesser known because this is basically all we know. But now as we turn to the other one, the Apostle Paul, you may have some serious reservations about considering him to be uh, somebody who should fit into this list of lesser known, especially when you consider the fact that after Jesus, Paul is probably the next most famous person of the entire New Testament. So how on earth would Krause uh, stand up in front of me and say he's lesser known? I don't say that. Paul says that. He puts it this way, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And you have to consider the context. Whereas James was a lesser known because of a lack of information and a spiritual status which we might put in the category of apathy, Paul says, I am actually a child of a wound. It's the Greek term for a miscarriage or an abortion. It's a sad term. It's a life not lived. And what Paul is doing is he's contrasting his spiritual status to that of James. James was apathetic, but Paul actively tried to exterminate the Christian church. He was witness at the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And after that, he took it upon himself. And he went to the Sanhedrin and said, hey, give me the, give me the authority and I'm going to go kill Christians. So now you might understand why Paul considers himself a lesser known, or dare I say why Paul, the greatest of the apostles in many of our minds, actually thinks of himself as nothing. Whereas James kind of slips in the back door, it took a miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus to take this man's soul out of hell and put him on the track to heaven. Because if the Lord himself had not intervened with a visual appearance to Paul, Saul, on the road to Damascus, the last of the resurrection appearances, Paul knows that he would have spent eternity separated from his creator God and his brother Jesus Christ, who wanted nothing other than to reunite him and make him part of God's 
family. I find it intriguing, to say the least, that the man that God used to probably reach more people during the first century than any other Christian missionary, a man who God chose to write about half of the New Testament, a man whom God called upon to stand and testify before kings and Caesars, that this fellow, deep in his heart, still thinks that he's nothing. That's why Paul fits into this list of lesser known, because deep in his heart is that same feeling that I think, at least in fleeting moments, we all feel. We've got a past. We've got baggage. And so we wonder how on earth could holy God, in any way, shape, or form, choose us to not only be part of his family, but to be part of his kingdom, us, lesser knowns, dare I say, us, who are nothing. Then you put on top of that the fact that the devil works so hard to whisper into our ears or to whisper into our hearts to remind us of our past and all of our baggage and try to use that to drive a wedge between us and our Savior and our Creator. And you see how quickly and how easily we too might feel the way that the Apostle Paul felt one abnormally born, one who in many people's eyes is nothing. And if it isn't the world screaming at us that we don't measure up to their standards of value and worth, and if it isn't the devil that we're listening to to say, you know what, you don't deserve any grace, then it's that voice in our own heads, our own negative self-talk, reminding us that though we want to do so much better in God's eyes and kingdom, so often we fall short. I don't mean to be depressing here, but the reality is, is that for far too many times, for far too many moments, when we take a look at ourselves, we come away with this same conclusion as Paul. I'm nothing. Everybody at one time or another feels that feels as if they don't measure up. In fact, I would say that most of us have at least at some point in our life gone through this very problem, that the world tries to put everybody into a box, that you measure up to this or you don't measure up to that, and somehow we judge or categorize people based on some outward appearance or something that they do or don't bring to the table. Oftentimes we do it to ourselves. We'll set goals or standards. It's like, if I can only do this, or I have it in my heart that I want to serve God with this. And we work and we struggle and we strive and then we don't. And he's right there. You failed. Maybe it was the way you were raised. Maybe you were raised in a, a fairly harsh family relationship. Fearful that somebody was always watching. Somebody was always judging. Maybe you've got a job like that where it seems like no matter what you do, you can never make the boss happy or your co-workers always find some problem with you. How much of that can we take before it starts to wear on us and we find ourselves doing the very same thing that the world's trying to do to us, to put us in this little box of description? And so do you understand how important this lesson is, this grand finale of lessons of the lesser known because let's be honest, we all fall into that category of lesser known. We don't have the fame and the fortune that the world calls for 
Instead, we've got the baggage and the burden that the devil reminds us of. Maybe it's time for us just to stop. Get outside the box. It's so easy to place people in boxes, drawing lines, creating sides. There's us, and there's them. Those we feel comfortable around, and those we don't. There are those of us with many chapters, and those just starting their own stories. There's the well-to-do, and those doing what they can. There are those we share something with, those we don't seem to share anything with. Welcome, and thank you for coming today, guys. Today I'm gonna to be conducting an experiment uh, where I'll ask you a series of questions. Now these questions will be very personal questions, and for us to get a true result, I need you to be completely honest with how you respond. The first question I have is who in here was the class clown? is never on time. And then, there's us. We who have tattoos. We who feel lonely. Beat cancer. 
are created in the image of God. And as one body, we stand together, united as one under His grace. You know, we don't need the devil to tempt us so much, and we don't need the world to judge us so hard because we tend to beat ourselves up pretty good. That's why the fellowship of faith is so, so very vital. Because when we're isolated from each other and when we're just listening to what's going on in our own head, we need our brothers and sisters to remind us that's not how God looks at us. I want to show you a miracle. I'm not going to raise anybody from the dead. I'm not going to heal anybody. I want to show you the miracle that God has done with this final lesser-known lesson. It's this one. You hear how Paul speaks about himself, even by inspiration, that though he was doing amazing and great things for God and the kingdom, still he carried this heavy heart of who he had been. Wouldn't it amaze us to be able to peel back the layers and just ask God, so why did you pick Paul then to write this letter to the Corinthians? And if you just stop to think about it for a moment, it is the miracle that I think we all need in our everyday lives. Because Paul needed to remember who took him from being a nobody and made him into somebody. The very thing that we all long for. Paul is the one that God used to remind the Corinthians about this again and again and again and again. So for every time Paul thought about those days behind him when he didn't, he's the one that God chose to remind the Corinthians of what God did. Because on his own, Paul wouldn't measure up to anything, humanly speaking or even in his own mind and heart. And yet when he views his life and his creation from God's perspective, he sees somebody very, very special. Somebody that God used in ways that no other human could. That he took this man who hated Jesus and wanted to destroy the church and turned him into one of the greatest missionaries and witnesses of the gospel this world has ever seen. Let me show you that from one other perspective. And I told you, I tell you, tell you about Zephaniah. And again, we don't know a lot about Zephaniah. He is truly one of the lesser known, but this we do know. He wrote during the time of a king of Judah, a lesser known that we have studied, Josiah. We, we talked about him a couple weeks ago. He was the one who became king of Judah at, at age eight because his father was so wicked, his own cabinet assassinated him. So at eight years old, he was thrust to the throne, and God had blessed Josiah with a good heart, a believing heart heart. And yet he came to the throne at a very dark time in the history of the nation of Judah. The worship of the true God had basically stopped. It wasn't being done openly. In place of all of the beautiful furnishings in the temple, what now stood in God's chambers were idols to Baal and Asherah and Moloch. And sadly, the first five books of the Bible, which God had Moses write, had been lost. And they would not have been found except for Josiah wanted things to be better. And so he ordered a remodeling of the temple. And by accident, the high priest found the scroll that had been hidden. And when Josiah read those words, 
he was cut to the heart and realized what Judah had done to their God. That they had turned their backs, that they had rebelled. And so Josiah immediately sets about a reformation. And that's why we studied him on Reformation on Sunday. Because it was not only a heart's desire, but he actually put action to his words and did his best to reform the kingdom of Judah. The problem is while they were reformed, they weren't transformed. Their hearts didn't catch up with his heart. And in less than 25 years, they were carried off into the Babylonian captivity as a disciplinary measure of God to get them back on the right track. Zephaniah is the one that God called to not only prophesy about the coming destruction, but even in the midst of this rebellious, godless people, the one that God had chosen to be the nation of the Savior, God says this of his children. I will take great delight in you. I will quiet you with my love. I will rejoice over you with singing. You see, God's grace is not measured by human standards. And it's not divvied out based on who we are. Good news for the disciples and even that rich young ruler. God's grace is his gift given to his creation not because we measure up to some great value or worth in our eyes or the world's eyes, but because when God looks at us, he sees his children, and he sees somebody that he has created to be very, very special. There is an empty tomb somewhere that proves to every one of us that when the world says you don't measure up, or this voice in here says, you're not good enough, that tomb says, you are. That empty tomb proves that you are the most special of God's creation, not only today, but you always will be. It's time to give thanks to God for the lesser known, of whom we certainly qualify, that God would make us some of his brightest stars. It's time we stop listening to the world, to the devil, and even to ourselves. And listen to the one that has made us somebody. Yeah, yeah, so I should be in the next hour or so. Yeah, no, absolutely, no, no problem. We'll get it, uh, we'll get it sorted. <clears throat> no, I've, I've already spoken to them, um, and they said it would be fine. Thank you.